Thanks for being with us this morning. Well, it wasn't that long ago. I believe it was 2014. Might have been 2014, 2015, 2014, I think. Not long ago, uh, we were talking about benefits and specifically benefits for BC teachers. And this was during the negotiations. And it somehow came out that the BC Teachers Federation wanted $3,000 a year for massage therapy. It was a bit misrepresented. It turned out that those were cases for teachers with chronic pain and specific cases where you would have to prove that there was a chronic health issue. Anyway, it blew up. It was taken off the table in the negotiations and there was a fair amount of outrage. Well, fast forward to today and we are now taking a look at a story for the BC Nurses Union and a provision in their contract which has unlimited massage therapy, not only for nurses, members of the union, but also for their family members. Now, no one is suggesting that nurses don't work hard. They do. My mother was a registered nurse. It is a grueling job. And I'm sure massage therapy is a very important part of the health regime for many nurses, especially those who are injured while on the job. But there are stories out this week that show uh, that certainly raise questions as to how much money some nurses are claiming for massage therapy alone. So let's bring in Chris Sims, the BC Director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation, to talk a little bit more about this. Chris, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you for the invite. Uh, What was your first reaction when you saw the story that has come out of the bargaining, the numbers were released, that they do in fact have unlimited massage therapy benefits and that there are about 21% of the members that are using 80% of those benefits? You know, I had two reactions. First, as a taxpayer and as part of my team, I went, whoa, those are some pretty high numbers. When you're taking a look at some of the individual claims, I think one nurse had claimed more than $170,000. I think that was the stat in one year. And then it was also a personal reaction because like you, uh, my mother was a registered nurse. And in fact, I will just say right up front, every woman in my family of that generation was either a registered nurse or an LPN, a licensed practical nurse, and those are the ones that are often caring for the elderly and the very physically disabled, so they're picking people up out of beds and putting them in baths and all those sorts of things. And so I went, oh, that's a really high number for some nurses. The, the lack of accountability, it seems, within the nurses' union um, is, sounds like the major problem here. It sounds as if perhaps the union leadership is even asking questions, like why is it that you know a certain percentage, a smaller percentage, around 20%, are claiming the vast majority of the massages here? And I think for most common-sense, everyday working people, if they can explain it, If they can give us good reasons, uh, if it's medically necessary, I think most British Columbians would be okay with it. I think the problem here is that we're seeing big numbers and the word unlimited. And I don't know if people are comfortable with that. I think they'd probably like some explanations as to why some of these numbers are so high. Because like you, I started asking questions, well... What if he or she was injured in the workplace? Um, We see that happen often. You can have a back injury. You can be assaulted in an emergency room. 
things like that can happen. But then when I started seeing things like unlimited nurses and their family members, <laughs> and it's a smaller percentage using most of the benefits, I, th- I think they just need to post why they're getting their massages and people might feel a bit better. And that was one of the numbers that stuck out to me as well. And this is the extreme case, yeah. the, the $174,000 used by one nurse and his or her dependents. Uh, somebody worked that out saying that would have to be 1.8 massages per day to get it to that amount. I mean, the, the, the nurses union or the the the, um, the employer could personally hire masseuse, the yes. massage therapist for every single hospital and pay less than I think it was the 31 million in massage therapy costs alone in 2017. Um, it was interesting. Mike Smith was talking to the head of the nurses union about this and she made some good points uh, similar to yours. And no one's suggesting, I think, that, you, mm-hmm. like you said, uh, that an injured nurse or somebody should not have these benefits. They're very, uh, they're very good benefits to have and they help. They get people back to work. And she was saying, this is what nurses are doing. They want to get back on the job. So if they're injured, or if this is preventative, it does that. And that's great. It's Mm -hmm. the families that, unless every family member is also a nurse, you really (laughs) can't make that argument that they too need unlimited massage therapy. That's a good point, because then if they were also a nurse, wouldn't they be just billing it themselves? (laughs) Yeah, great point. And so I think that's what really kind of raised eyebrows. Um, And anytime you wind up with big, um, wide loopholes for people of unlimited and their family, you're unfortunately going to get um, high numbers from certain numbers of people. What I was encouraged by is that around 80% are using $1,000 or less. One, that means hopefully they're not getting injured or damaged on the job so much. And two, that's a more reasonable number, I think, for most BCers when they look at these stats. And we need to keep in mind also that compared to other jobs, uh, nurses, whether they be men or women, are on their feet um, more than I would say the average government employee is. And so again, there's lots of different um, asterisks we need to put around this first, but you're absolutely right. That stat that was worked out that the one nurse would have had to have more than one massage per day, like imagine just somebody following you around and saying, okay, it's time. (laughs) What was neat is that that was actually the union leader, as far as I can tell, that went, what? (laughs) And worked it all out. So that, to me, indicates that they realize that there is a bit of a spotlight on this and that they need to take a look at it. And again, I think if they're able to account for it, if they're able to account for it, I think most British Columbians will probably be fine with it. And then I'd also be curious to see how this number compares to how much it would cost in sick days. Uh, if they were injured or too fatigued um, to be able to get back on their feet and back on the job. So I'd be curious to know how much does this big massage therapy bill, and it's a big one, compare to how much we would have cost in sick benefits if they'd been taken off the job. Absolutely. And I think one of the things that it raises as well, one of the questions is if you go back and you don't have to go back that far, mm-hmm. it used to be that if you worked in the public sector, your salary maybe wasn't quite as good as the private sector, but your benefits were gold star and your pension was guaranteed. Doesn't matter what was happening with it. You get the guaranteed pension. And that was a bit of the trade-off. But now it seems to be that uh, in the public sector, there's this demand for the same uh, same salary as, as across the board with uh, with the private sector. And also this incredibly, this incredible gold star benefits package, which is where I think we see things a little bit out of whack. Yeah, I think that's where folks often, um, that's where they divide the line. And then also with some, and this is generalizing, but with some uh, public sector employee roles, there aren't 
very often comparable private sector roles. Like, for example, there aren't masses and teams and thousands of nurses, for example, working in private sector. If, even if you wanted to compare it to, like, a dentist office or something, you can't really. And then also, like, police, things like that. that that's public sector, and you can't really compare it to the private sector. And so the base salary wage is a hard comparison, but you're right, it was the benefits. It was the idea that you had your job guaranteed, that you'd have your pension, you'd be able to retire, you'd hopefully have things like uh, medical, dental, all those things. But this is, again, when you get into unlimited and their families, that's when taxpayers start saying, could you just explain why? Um, I'd like to know why you're billing $170,000 per year. And again, maybe this person has severe physical disabilities, but they're still wanting to stay on the job. And then my question would be, isn't there a better way of providing that health care? So why don't we just look outside here and figure out a way to provide massage care for this person who may need this level of massage care to continue functioning as a nurse at a much better rate? Like there must be a better way of paying to keep this person on the job and on their feet. Well, my guess is uh, we'll be talking about it more. And like you said, it was actually the uh, the BC Nurses Union CEO who worked out the numbers. Yeah. So clearly it's it's on the radar for yeah. them and, and they are talking about it. Yes, they're very aware of it. And I do find typically um, it, that a lot of healthcare, especially nurses, um, the front lines, the ones that are triaging you in the middle of the night when you're coming in or helping you after your surgery, they're quite aware, I find, of, of costs. Um, they, they seem to be quite aware of medical supply cost, of, of cost to the public system because they work in it all the time. So again, it's good that 80% of them are keeping it under a certain level, but it, you, you need some accountability there to explain why some folks are getting more than a massage a day. That, that's a high number. All right, uh, Chris, we will leave it there. Always good to talk with you. Thanks so much for coming on the show. You take care. Bye-bye. Well, as you've likely been hearing in the news, a Port Alberni couple and their friend all charged with assault for allegedly tackling and then hogtying a man who was accused of being a sexual predator were in court yesterday and they were met by dozens of supporters. And this all had to do with a sting operation that they set up and played out in April of 2018. In response to a 28-year-old man they say was intending to have sex with the couple's 13-year-old daughter. Uh, the mother was handed a six-month conditional discharge. Uh, the 38-year-old partner and a family friend both given conditional discharges uh, with one-year probation uh, after all three pleaded guilty to common assaults. Uh, let's bring in Tristan Hopper. He's a reporter with the National Post, and he has written about this case. Tristan, great to have you back on the show. Thanks for having me. Uh, you wrote about this. You've got a ton of reaction to the story online. Uh, what was it that drew you or wanted, wanted, you wanted to cover what was happening with this couple out of Port Alberni? Uh, it's a case, I mean, it's been around since uh, the actual incident happened in April. So it's been sort of floating around uh, a bunch. But, uh, you know, this is these are always stories that, that sort of do well, uh, this sort of line between uh, vigilantism and, and people feel that who feel that they aren't being served by the government. So, I mean, this happens every every once in a while. Uh, but uh, yeah, these, these stories are in, always interesting because on the one side you have the RCMP saying don't take the law into your own hands, but on the other side uh, you have the mother in this case saying, well, you know, the law. I tried the law, uh, but the law didn't serve me, so I, I felt I had to take action. And most people reading it sympathize with it. Now, you know, we're only hearing one side of the story, but from the information we know. Uh, yeah, I think it would be hard for most parents to say that they wouldn't hope they would do the same thing as this mother did. 
And I think one of the things, and we've, we've been talking about this too on, on the various programs here, one of the, the common themes that comes out is the question about the streaming it live on Facebook. And a lot of parents saying, yes, I absolutely understand. And the frustration if the police aren't doing everything that you would like them to do to try and catch this guy. But when they live streamed it on Facebook, that's where some people kind of took a step back and said, well, wait a minute. Uh, yeah. Now, uh, if you ask the mother and I, 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 why she did that, I mean, it seems like you would do something. This, this something you would do this privately. This doesn't need to be a public spectacle. That's sort of all over the world. Now, the reason she said she was doing that is because uh, she wanted to alert uh, the rest of the community. So this is someone she's known ever since she was a child. Uh, she, this guy has access to other children. Uh, so she was saying, well, you know, I wanted to li- live stream it and. You know, if, if you watch the video, I mean, she's pointing a camera in his face and saying his name out loud uh, several times. So she was saying uh, it was she was trying to alert others uh, that this was something he was up to. Uh, which I think parents can can get that as well. And imagine being the parent that if, if this person was to go on and do the same thing and then going back to that couple saying, well, why didn't you tell us? Why didn't you do anything about this? Yeah, I mean, Canada's a bit different than the United States. I mean, uh, in the United States, you have a sex offender registry, so you can actually, as you're moving into a neighborhood, you can actually look at a map and see, you know, there's a sex offender uh, two doors down from you. I think you can even look up what that person's offense was. Uh, but we don't really have that in Canada. It, all we have is uh, every once in a while the police will just uh, say, oh, there's a dangerous child sex offender who, with, who is you know, almost guaranteed to reoffend is being released into Vancouver. They don't tell you where. They don't tell you what neighborhood. It's just an old photo of him. So, uh, yeah, I think people are correct to assume that the government isn't tremendously uh, invested in letting people know uh, about who sex offender, child sex offenders are and what they're doing. Uh, Do you think a story like this, and now that we have the outcome, uh, the conditional sentences, they won't have criminal records provided they follow the rules of those uh, conditional uh, conditional discharges. Uh, Do you think a story like this encourages this kind of taking the law into your own hands? Uh, I I don't know, because, yeah... um uh, I mean, again, we we only have the mother's side of the story, so we don't have the you know the alleged uh, the alleged sex offenders, uh, and he hasn't been charged, uh, so he was under investigation by the RCMP. He is still under investigation by the RCMP. Uh, now it's potential they are building a case against him, and those charges will be could be coming. But uh, as of yet, he's just an alleged sex offender, and we don't have. Uh, the side uh, the side of the story from the RCMP. So from the mother's side, she said uh, she realized that, uh, you know, six, uh, six weeks after she told the RCMP to investigate, uh, this guy was still messaging her daughter, and that's where she decided to mount the sting operation. So she said, she approached the RCMP and said, I'm going to mount the sting, you should cooperate with me, and she was just turned away. Now, uh, we don't sort of know the details of that story. I mean, it was a highly emotionally charged moment uh, at the time, so uh, I mean, all we're getting is sort of this vague warning from the RCMP, don't take the law into your own hands. But when people are saying, well, this seems like a really reasonable time to take the law into your own hands, uh, we're getting nothing from the Mounties. So, you know, maybe there's a side of the story we don't know, but uh, we're not hearing it from the RCMP. That is, that's very, very true. We're also not hearing, and I'm in no way suggesting that the 13-year-old is to blame, but we aren't hearing as well from the 13-year-old. Who knows what the 13-year-old thought about what was going on, uh, whether she continued messaging or continuing continued wanting uh, to to. Con- con- this relationship or to keep this text message relationship going. We don't really know what was happening there or what the parents were dealing with. Yeah, yeah. It's it's obviously still illegal if you're 28 and, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, a 13-year-old is a child. Uh, so, I mean, that does come up in the the video, the Facebook Live video. So uh, the mother sort of you know, points the camera in the face and says, this man was coming to rape my daughter. And then she corrects herself and says, well, no, I mean, they, they weren't messaging. But, you know, it's still illegal. It's still child luring. Uh, 
Um, you know, so, yeah, if, if what she says is correct, I mean, this is a child sex offender. Um, and she's right to assume uh, that, that if this is what he likes doing, uh, it's, a, it's a possibility uh, that other people are being victimized. I mean, you know, child sex offenders don't just stop with the one victim. Like, oh, you know, my heart was taken away by this 13-year-old, so I decided to be attracted to children. I mean, uh, multiple victims is sort of the modus operandi. So, I mean, the, this has formed two, two community groups have sort of formed after this case. And, you know, the, the group is mostly formed by people who were victimized as children. They're like, you know, I have uh, long-term consequences. And it's, it's ludicrous that you have a case in which it seems like there was pretty clear evidence that this guy was a risk to children and the police can't take action. So I, what, a lot of what I'm seeing, the protest movement, is they're advocating for stronger powers for the police. So it's not really a, a Mountie bashing protest. They're saying uh, we should have a system in which if you have evidence that someone is trying to lure a child over social media, uh, the police should be able to take much quicker action than having to take six weeks to build a case. Uh, yeah, and that's. I think that's a fair comment or fair argument to, to, to put out there. I think what also came into play, too, was the fact we're talking about Port Alberni, and I, and it can go either way. You could think of if you were in a huge, in a bigger city, like say you were in Vancouver or Surrey, you would think there would be more police resources and maybe you would get more attention. But then on the flip side of that, there's also the argument being made that we're talking about the smaller community of Port Alberni. How yeah. busy are the police, really? It's not a huge city. It's not, it's not a bustling crime place so you would think maybe you would have more attention by the police you would it would be easier to get their help i haven't looked at the stats but i think it actually is kind of a busted crime place uh so uh yeah the, the sense i've gotten and i haven't backed this up with stats or by talking to the police is that uh, yeah port alberni has a sort of a, a higher than average share of just sort of your drug crimes your, your bar fights so uh yeah i, I think it would uh, the, the police are relatively busy there so i'm not sure if that factors into this uh, but, uh, you know, it's it, it's coastal B.C. It's sort of a, you know, we, 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 there's, there's the share, fair share of, uh, of rough towns. But, I mean, further to what I was saying about these, these organizations, I think they're right to say uh, that Canada is, is pretty bad uh, at its punishments and its, its prosecution of child sex offenders. For instance, there was a, an MLA uh, here in Alberta. He was, uh, he was convicted of, I think, molesting a child under 10 several times. Uh, over the course of a year. And he actually got a pretty strong sentence for that crime, which is three years in prison. And, you know, knowing how things shake out, he'll probably be out of prison in two years. I mean, that this is for causing lifelong damage to a child. I mean, this, this, this person will have intimacy issues. They'll have safety issues. I mean, they'll, you know, you usually never get over something like that. And they go to prison just for two and a half years. And again, that's a long sentence. Uh, I've seen often, frequently, child sex offenders with multiple victims, dozens of victims, getting out of prison within four years. And again, you get that uh, alert from the police, high risk to reoffend. Uh, we not, we're not telling you where this guy's going, but he's probably going to victimize more children. Yeah. So do you think maybe that is one of the positives that could come from this, is a bigger conversation about that and how Canada uh, does deal with uh, child sex offenders and this high, uh, the weighing the right to privacy against the rights uh, of people to know? Uh, it would be good, uh, but at the same time, uh, I mean, this, this has been going on for 20 years, and it's such a clearly glaring problem. I think it's probably, you could characterize it as one of the uh, biggest and most easily solved problems in the Canadian federal government, is that we are so soft on child sex offenders, we keep letting out. I mean, I, I, I can name specific instances in which, you know, people have, you know, murdered children, uh, people have, uh, you know, 
imprisoned children, you know, raped them, tied them to beds, and they're out of prison uh, within two, three years only to find other victims. So, I mean, that's clearly such an obvious problem. So, uh, yes, I'm optimistic that uh, there could be some movement to change the laws. But when we've already had these horrific problems that are victimizing children and governments have refused to take action, that also causes me to be pessimistic. All right. Well, we will leave it there on that note. Tristan, always good to talk to you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Well, there are a lot of questions and there appears to be growing concern about the powers that police in Canada have when it comes to getting impaired drivers off the road or when it comes to even questioning people who they suspect might be impaired behind the wheel. We're going to bring in a criminal defense lawyer to talk a bit more about this. Ari Goldkind joins me on the line. Ari, thanks so much for taking some time with us this morning. Pleasure. Good to be on with you, Joe. Uh, You tweeted out uh, that the sky is most definitely not falling, uh, despite some interesting what-if scenarios. Perfect cannot be the enemy of the good. Uh, What is your response to how people are are talking about this or interpreting uh, this law that is in place now? Well, it's a great question because I'm sort of going against the criminal defense bar, which I'm a very proud member of and think there's an amazing criminal defense lawyer bar in this country. But I think the comments of certain criminal lawyers, that the police are essentially all racist, and this is going to open up uh, police willy-nilly bursting through your door at your house or pulling over visible minorities, I think are really shameful sort of kind of comments that don't reflect the realities on the ground, that don't reflect any facts or evidence. They're political positions that have no basis in reality. And the truth is, and the dirty little secret, and this affects me just as much as anybody else, Justin Trudeau has shut down many criminal defense's lawyer ability to make tens, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars from trying to get guilty drunk drivers off on a technicality. That's what the Trudeau government has done. So this sky is falling idea that the Trudeau government has done something wrong or there's something inappropriate about this legislation, particularly when they trot out the trope of it's going to affect visible minorities more, which all evidence is to the contrary really bothers me because my job and any lawyer's job is to search for truth, not just to advance a specific political position. So uh, talk about this, because I think the big concern is we see the headlines and we see the the details of this now saying that in the revised laws, a police officer could come to your house a couple of hours after you've arrived home and say, we suspect you were impaired behind the wheel. We want a breath sample from you. And people see that as an invasion of privacy and an overreach for police. Okay, so here's the, the nub of it. People don't see that. People don't say it. A couple of outspoken criminal defense lawyers went on a certain network and gave those clips, and they've gotten lots of attention. So here's the reality, and that people should know. Nothing much has changed from six months ago on the previous regime of impaired. And it's not like cop and police forces are going out to hire 2,000 new police officers tomorrow to come to your door. At the end of the day, if you were leaving a wedding or a bar mitzvah and somebody called uh, the cops to say, Jill is driving uh, madly all over the road, she's weaving, she's juking and jiving, she can't be in her right mind, and then they come to your house and they knock on your door. Six months ago, the cops would have to probably smell some booze on you or see some glassy eyes. This is just at the door. I'm not talking about the roadway. I'm not talking about driver stops, which are 99.9% of the impaired business. They'd have to see that in your eyes to make you blow into the machine. Now, if there's a tip, somebody calls up, 
and sees you and you come to the door in your house, they don't have to see your glassy eyes, but they're going to ask you to blow into the machine. This is what the, a couple lawyers are up in arms about, screaming and yelling. Police cannot burst through your door. Nobody should think they could just come in. Very little has changed. And the example that somebody made up that I thought was so over the top is what if a couple's going through a divorce and now the wife wants to get the husband so she calls up and makes up a fake complaint? How that example, that trope, that ridiculous example that may happen three times across Canada this year, maybe twice, affects the tens of thousands of people hurt by drinking and driving where all these people have not gotten the message that drinking and driving will cost you you could get caught. You can't get fancy lawyers like me anymore to get you off. I'm much more, Jill, on the side of mothers against drunk driving and those of us who drive sober than I am these made-up stories where the police are bugging a guy who returns 200 empties to the uh, beer store and asks him to blow into the machine. We're not in a police state, and anybody who says differently, I think, really needs to look into a, a mirror and ask if they want to put that position up to a lie detector. Right. But the, you bring up the example of the guy taking the empties back. But isn't that a bit of a, a, an overreach? I mean, a lot of people take empties back to the Recycle Depot. That doesn't mean you've been drinking and driving. That's exactly right. And that's why not only was that maybe one cop doing an overreach. And by the way, that story, which led to all these stories that we're talking about today, was a white guy in Ontario. People have used that to pervert it into all police are racist and they're going to be pulling over all the visible minorities now that probably make up the majority of Canada. I think it's completely slanderous to cops. But look, there's going to be some idiot cop that asks a guy to blow into a breathalyzer at the beer store returning 300 empties. I know people will disagree with this, and I'm about to say it, so I don't care if they do. If that's the price of having the streets be a little bit safer because you don't know if that guy who's returning 300 empties has had a little bit to drink. You're inconveniencing him for about two minutes. I'm, and I'm a criminal defense lawyer who fights for people's rights every day, Jill. I'm okay with that happening once in a blue moon where you're inconvenienced for 30 seconds. You've got nothing in your system, no booze, you blow, the cop says, have a good day. But I can tell you, There are people who don't look glassy-eyed, who aren't stumbling all over themselves, who in previous days the police couldn't ask to do anything, and they are as responsible for the carnage on our roads as anybody else who looks like a typical drunk. There's a balancing, and I think, and you should know this, Joe, I've been critical of the Trudeau government on a whole whack of issues. I really think his government deserves praise here because this is a serious problem that the message of drinking and driving has not properly gotten out to people, and hopefully this will change things. So what about the issue, though? And I think we've covered stories here of of this loophole, I suppose you could call it, in that people who don't get the message that drinking and driving is wrong and you will pay the price, uh, people that have gotten into crashes know that if you run... You go home and you drink vodka, you drink wine, you start drinking. That was the loophole to get you out of it because you could then say, well, I started drinking after the crash, so there's no way to prove that I was drunk when I crashed the car. Is this to stop that? Yes. And what that term is, to to get into legalese, what's called bolus drinking, B-O-L-U-S, a term that none of us ever use in everyday life. And the government has tried to change that. And I can tell you, Courts have already been on top of that for years. Judges are extremely 
bothered by those defenses unless they have a real ring of truth, some corroboration. Your wife, your kids saw you come into the house completely sober, and then you started to get drunk from the strain and stress of the accident. But judges, and I'm being very clear here to people, judges have continually rejected these defenses as a pie in the sky, throw a bunch of stuff at the wall at court and see what sticks. And all the government has tried to do is say, look, if you are blowing two or three times over the legal limit and you were seen driving a half an hour ago or an hour ago, you're not going to get to run into court and pull the wool over our eyes. And in my view, this is a responsible response to it. Yes, there will be problems. There will be growing pains. Yes, fantastic defense lawyers will challenge things that are wrong. There are always going to be things that are wrong in every law, Jill, whether it be mandatory minimums, whether it be sentencing for murder, whether it be Me Too cases. There are always going to be problems. That's why the defense lawyers are standing by. But to throw all of this under the bus because of the empties case or anything else, I think is grossly irresponsible. If, like me, when I'm not playing defense lawyer in court, I want to be on roadways where people are sober. Uh, One more question, because coming from that, one of the concerns is what if somebody drives home and they are completely sober, they start drinking when they get home, an hour and a half later, there's a knock on the door, for whatever reason, somebody's reported them, or for whatever reason, there's an officer there, and you blow over, and suddenly you're facing an impaired charge, even though you did not drive impaired. That's right. And so, first of all, they'd have to have a tip. This is the point about the divorced couple, because this is what somebody has trotted out that some poor husband or wife is going to try and trap their partner. First of all, the police can't show up at your door and ask you to do anything unless there's been some report that you're drinking and driving all over the place. Because remember, the law at brass tacks, and this is what will affect 99.8% of listeners. What we're talking about is the 0.0002% example. But if you want to take that example, the police get a call, they're coming to your door, and you answer your door. Now, if you don't answer your door, Jill, they're not coming through it with a battery ram. There's been a lot of misinformation about this. They still need warrants to come into your house unless you're being held hostage. But if you answer that door, they just don't have to see the glassy eyes anymore. They're going to say, somebody has called, you've been seen on the roadway, you've been seen on the seat of Sky Highway going up to Whistler, you're now in your hotel room, we're going to ask you to blow into this machine. Why anybody thinks that's too much of a stretch when, if you want to come to court and say, well, I blew two or three times over the legal limit, I wasn't driving, I was never in my car, etc., you'll have defense lawyers like me ready to take that case. But back to the tweet that you read to your listeners as you started, perfect cannot be the enemy of the good. All right. Ari Goldkind, we'll have to leave it there. We're out of time, but thank you so much. Appreciate you coming on the show today. Thank you. We were uh, talking about property taxes and small businesses with Michael Levy a little earlier on in the program. But now we are going to look at rental buildings and if the assessments when we're talking about multifamily buildings could lead to higher rents right across the province. David Hutniak is the CEO of Landlord BC and joins me on the line now. David, great to have you back on the program. Yeah, thanks for having me. What are you looking at or what are you hearing from landlords as well with the assessments going up and what that might mean for their business? Yeah, I mean, we're, we're seeing uh, huge increases in the assessments. And what we did uh, really quickly was uh, uh, 
a study in Victoria, and we were able to quickly assess about 20% of the purpose-built rental market there, which is mostly the older buildings. And I think uh, there were 88 buildings, about 3,700 units. Average size of the buildings were 42 units. So that's sort of the uh, gives you a good sense for what we were looking at. And the assessments went up uh, 13.6%, and, and the uh, actual you know, property taxes went up on average 20%. And that was before uh, you know the uh, the, the uh, city of Victoria tax of I think 3.5% is added onto that. And so, obviously, we're also getting some uh, data from uh, our members um, on an ongoing basis here. So in Vancouver, we're seeing. Uh, those assessments and the, and the property taxes higher, so that's uh, you know pretty pretty significant uh, hit to the bottom line, and and uh, needless to say that's going to translate into higher rents. Although you know having said that, it's not going to reflect uh, the real costs uh, to us of these increased taxes because you know we have uh, the rent controls restrict uh, our 29, uh, 2019 increases to just CPI, which is two and a half percent. But but everybody's going to go for the full. Two and a half percent. They they really will have no choice. Uh, they'll go for the two and a half percent, and and that will still won't cover what the increase is. No. So what does that mean though for people that are coming newly into the rental market? In that people who are already there will be facing the two and a half percent, but landlords will have to try and make that up somewhere else, won't they? Well, sure. I mean, uh, this is a pretty uh, simple business. I mean, needless to say, you know you. The cash flow is all from from rent, and so when that's uh, restricted because you're you know uh, you have controls on what uh, you can charge, and then when your expenses continue to uh, to escalate, so so needless to say, uh, there's a tightening up in terms of of your the expenses you can control, which, which is uh, you know maintenance and further uh, investment and improvement of of the of the building. Uh, so you know those need to be uh, looked at really hard and 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 likely deferred so you can you know spread out those costs over a period of time so that's not ideal but you know that that's sort of some of the choices that uh, that owners of these buildings are going to have to make uh and you know that doesn't uh, there's no winners when that happens i mean obviously these are uh, we have a lot of older buildings and and you know they need continued investment and so when that has to be uh, sort of pulled back uh, somewhat uh you know, that, again, that's that's not how we would uh, prefer to operate. And, and clearly, you know, renters as a result are also going to be living in buildings that are going to probably deteriorate a little more. So it's, you know, it's 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 increasingly challenging to uh, sort of the viability of, of owning a, a rental building is it, it's it's a huge challenge and it's continuing. And what is it about this year, do you think? Is it worse this year? Because we've certainly seen property values increase very, very much over the last yeah. few years. Is there something different about this year? Yeah, there's there's a couple of things, sort of two extenuating circumstances, and I don't want to get into the too deep into the weeds here, but uh, two things. First of all, uh, you know, much like commercial buildings, like the, there's that the manufacturer of tiles in Burnaby who, who saw their assessment go up like 250%. Uh, because uh, a big institutional investor, I think Amazon was one, bought you know property near them, and that is taken into account when their assessment is uh, is done, and, and they were paying you know huge multiples for those properties. We, we we've seen some of that, where you know uh, larger inst- institutional uh, investors are sort of in our view overpaying for the properties, so that that destroys the market. The other thing is. 
and, and this one is probably more troubling, uh, is the fact that BC assessment, they assume that every owner of a purpose-built rental building is going to charge market rent for every unit in their building in 2019. And that's just simply not the case. Uh, so they, they use like July 2018 market rents as a metric. and they, So they build this revenue into the assessment at rents that basically are not achievable because of rent controls and the shortage, shortage of supply, which uh, contributes to low turnover. So they are telling rental building owners for assessment purpose, this is the revenue we expect you to earn when it's just not based in reality. So that's, that's a huge issue, and, and it, it's, it's, uh, you know, we've had discussions with uh, BC Assessment, or um, a number of our, our, our members have, I should say, uh, in sort of beginning what would hopefully be an appeal process, and, and uh, the, the response has been pretty much, you know, we're allowed to do this, and, and this is what we're going to do. So that's, that's somewhat disappointing. So uh, we're really kind of trying to determine what our next steps might be there. And one is, we, you know, we have reached out to the Minister of Municipal Affairs and Housing to, to put this issue on her radar. Uh, and um, so, you know, and we hope to have other discussions with her. Uh, is it possible to challenge the assessment uh, bec- or appeal the assessments on some of these buildings? Yeah, you know, we, the, the, in this sample, uh, we we looked at uh, with with. The, the the group that uh, manages this entire sample in Victoria, and uh, in the course of the discussions that have been held thus far, it doesn't look like appeals would be particularly successful. Uh, it's just uh, uh, you know there's there's when you when you look at the basis that they 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 use, with the exception of this this revenue um, component. Uh, which they, you know, which they said this is how we're going to do it. Uh, the the uh, appeal of these is, it's I don't think it's going to be a whole lot of success to be very perfectly candid with you. So you know that's rather frustrating. So so really, you know, have to think about uh, what the options are, and, and they're fairly limited in terms of you know this this tax year. But that's what, like I said, we're raising this issue and, and uh, getting it on the radar and and. and uh, you know, hopefully have a robust discussion in 2019 and, and try to make some changes for 2020. But, you know, I mean, in, in the interim, again, uh, why we reached out to the, to the Minister of uh, Housing is that, uh, you know, there's, there's things that she can do right now um, on a legislative front specific to the Residential Tenancy Act to basically allow more liberal rent increases. And uh, so, you know, that's something that, that could be addressed. And, Perhaps even more importantly, I mean, there are there are measures that, that the government can take to really help, uh, you know, encourage building of supply, which is really the ultimate solution. And you, I've talked with you many times in the last few years, and I perhaps sound like a uh, you know a broken record on this issue, but that that is the issue. You know, we we need supply of rental, and uh, and uh, you know one of the things that we've suggested in the past, and really I think this is the opportunity to really act on this. Ontario recently did. Which is, you know, a simple policy decision that they could make that would really be a, 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 a boon for new rental construction, and not cost taxpayers a penny. Would be to, like I said, do what Ontario has done, which is they basically eliminated rent controls and all new purpose-built rental construction. And uh, what that would do is just motivate developers to build uh, rental. Potentially, you know, at the kind of scale that we're seeing at, at, uh, in Seattle, our neighbors to the south, where you know they have, don't have rent controls on, on 
well, any rent controls, but also on new construction. And we, they're, they've got double-digit vacancy rates and rents are going down. And that, that's where we need to go. We, we need uh, uh, sort of an environment that's going to uh, encourage uh, large-scale building of purpose-built rental housing. All right, uh, David, we'll leave it there, but I'm sure we will talk to you again about this issue and see where things go with the minister. Uh, but thanks so much for joining us and raising these concerns today. Appreciate it. Great. Thanks for inviting me. Take care.